0: Well, you are tuned into Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast for the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your producer, Connor Chato, introducing this episode because it was recorded on location at Western's Master of Public Health Poster Day for the graduating class of 2019. You'll hear some great interviews hosted by Jenna Schlurf about the public health work done by these graduates here at Western. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hi there, and we're here today with Javier with the Master of Public Health um, Showcase Day. So, hi Harveer, welcome. Hi could you tell us a bit about your project and about your practicum i know that the master of public health program for our listeners it's a 12-month program it's course-based masters and the last three months of it we're out on practicum mm-hmm. um, so we're doing research projects in various fields so we have a few students here today that we're interviewing um, so yeah if Harvier, could you give us a little bit of info about what what you were doing this summer
2: yeah i was uh in ottawa with brea research institute And I got a chance to work with Dr. Krenzel, who's a global health researcher, um, look a little bit more closely at the data that she's collected from different interventions that she did uh, in partnership with a bunch of other people. Um, And I got a chance to look at the Indian data, which was a qualitative analysis on mass drug administrations in trying to eliminate lymphatic filariasis within within the country so that's what most of my time was um essentially analyzing people's interviews okay yeah
1: and uh so this this is it a disease that you were kind of looking at or a virus or yeah and that you said in the um pre-interview you were mentioning it was like a Neglected tropical disease, is that correct? Could you tell us a bit about that, what that is?
2: Yeah, uh, neglected tropical diseases are often labeled neglected because they are diseases that impact people's morbidity. So though they don't lead to death, they often impact a person's life and life trajectory. Um, And we call them neglected because they don't often get the funding that they need. They're diseases that we can eliminate. We have the capacity to. Uh, we just need to mobilize a lot of efforts to to get to that. Right. Um, popular and neglected tropical diseases—you've probably heard of like, like leprosy, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. guinea worms—and um, so the one that uh, the research project that I was f- working on was lymphatic filariasis, which is um, essentially nematodes that. Mm um uh there's filari in your blood so basically like baby nematodes that kind of you know circulate through your system and then they accumulate in your lymph nodes and that's where they turn into adults Hmm. um so it leaves people um you know deformed especially within especially uh, lower body areas so your legs end up um you know, grow, growing quite much larger than they usually are, and for men, hydrosal usually happens, so they aggregate within um, the genitalia, so mm-hmm. it ends up becoming very difficult for men as well. Right. Um, and like I said, these diseases can definitely be eliminated, and there have been a lot of global efforts over the past 20, 30 years. So there was a goal that was set by international organizations to essentially eliminate lf and other ntds around 2020 but we're nowhere close to that and so there's a lot of talks going on well what's going to be the next step so um yeah the neglected tropical diseases are diseases that we could get rid of but we just don't often have the resources or mobilize enough people to do that
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Very interesting. Very yeah. cool. Um, going back to your your I guess research, um, you mentioned you did a qualitative analysis. Could yeah. Could you kind of go into that and tell us what that means?
2: Yeah. Qualitative analysis essentially is uh, going into what people say and what people's thoughts are, and pouring over those interviews and essentially pulling something together that can help you understand what exactly is trying to be said through those words Mm -hmm. um so we pull themes usually and from those themes you can go forward and um you know potentially provide recommendations from from what's being said in in my context it was a interview with the community um so community health staff people who are received the treatment um and what their opinions and their ideas and you know, what they felt um, through that experience, and that could potentially help with future programming and, and how we're going to be doing the next uh, mass drug administrations within those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you can usually do qualitative analysis by hand if you really want to, you know, pouring mm-hmm. over interviews and just writing out themes yourself, but there are softwares that help to do that, so I particularly used Envivo, uh which was really interesting to use Mm because usually people like to just do the handwork instead of of plugging something into a software especially a software that's you know um, a little bit difficult to navigate from time to time but you know we did it so i was pretty happy with that
1: great great and um could you share some of your findings from this analysis
2: yeah i pulled about six themes from the work so just to give context the areas that we were looking at uh, we, like I said, we interviewed health staff and uh, and men and women in separate groups who uh, were received treatment, um, which is essentially three different drugs given at the same time. Okay. Uh, and it's a new treatment. And we just wanted to understand how it was received. Mm-hmm. So not the f- efficacy of the drug, but how the treatment was received by the people and its delivery and the care. Okay. Uh, we found that India is a really interesting example because India has had mass drug administration so mass drug administration essentially is having a huge mobilizing efforts on delivering these medications over the course of a week or two weeks usually yeah. it's about a week <laughs> um, and the, the the goal is essentially to eradicate this disease in local areas and you know be able to say that a certain area is eliminate is lf free mm-hmm. but India is odd because it's actually had LF like MDAs over the course of like the last ten years, but only twenty about I forget the exact number. I'm not going to say it. But there's a very low number of people Mm. who actually know what MDA is, even though they've received the treatment before. Mm. So there's just this, like, the knowledge translation that didn't happen is so apparent. And our goal was essentially to see well, what could we would, what can be pulled from the interviews to find that? And the themes that we found were care was very important. So, what was really surprising was that patients were talking about how they hadn't received this level of care before because doctors were a part of it, or we had huge health teams mm-hmm. that were out there working. Um, something as simple as saying that, like we knew if, you know, if we had a number to the health staff, or if we knew that the clinic was potentially going to be open tomorrow, that was going to be very useful for us, mm-hmm. and it helped. Um, curb their fear of side effects. So that's one big thing that's come up in the past, a huge theme that usually comes up in previous qualitative research is people's fear of side effects, especially in relation to the treatment. Um, and that makes people not want to get it because they're kind of scared of it. Mm-hmm. But this time around, they said that because the doctors were there, they felt better. And that was very big for us because we're like, we didn't know mm-hmm. that that could actually make such a big difference. Yeah. Um, the participation of elders was really big. So if elders said in those villages, that if this goes, this goes, and people often complied to that. Professionalism was really big. So knowing that the team carried themselves in a certain way, gave legitimacy to the program and in that area in that specific cultural context it works um and we had quite a few other themes that popped up so <laughs> from those themes i provided future recommendations okay. um like one is to potentially bridge that knowledge translation mm-hmm. gap like that's you know it, it, it speaks volumes that your population doesn't know what this mda is for even yeah, yeah. like there's a huge gap that they still need to jump mm-hmm. and, and needs to be jumped and that's where um the issue of stakeholders and the way stakeholders engage with with mda comes in as well because master administration uh only happens because uh three big pharmaceutical companies have donated all this medicine so the medicine's free okay so that's always a big thing yes. that the medication's free we can definitely mobilize the resources right. to get the change that we want to see mm-hmm. but the trouble ends up becoming more or less on the stakeholder side because they want certain things to happen at a certain time such as the government. Mm -hmm. Um, I know Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is also really interested in this now so they have specific timelines in other countries but we can't I feel like just from my perspective and what from from the data that we pulled we need to make sure that we bridge a lot of the knowledge gaps Mm -hmm. because if the
1: population doesn't understand then you're not going to get the results that you want to see. Yeah exactly yeah those are really interesting findings and really I guess kind of simple things that you know like you said you didn't know this before and you can hopefully implement these and make make big changes right yeah yeah to people's care that's awesome um and you mentioned community health workers and yeah um can you kind of go into their role in this whole project
2: yeah so the Ugandwandi workers um who work i think under the ministry of uh family health you can correct me if i'm wrong probably did get that wrong that's okay (laughs) Uh, they, um, they, they essentially work from Aganwandi uh, centers, which is the government's efforts to essentially provide better rural care and better maternal health care mm. for women. Um, but the odd thing is that they get the task shifted role of doing MDA administ- like doing MDA itself. Okay. Um, and, and they usually take it up because you know it's extra money, they don't get paid mm. well. And they usually are pretty easy to mobilize because they already have an infrastructure in place. Mm-hmm. But the problem we saw was because they're government workers, some villages have problems with that. So they have issues with people work, who work within the government. and mm-hmm. so if a government worker comes in like gives them medication, they might not want to take it. Right. We've also seen that the community health workers, because they're women, they're most they're predominantly women. Um, they have other roles outside of the role that they, p- they play within the centers, mm-hmm. um, and it's important for them to come back home. So sometimes the MDA itself is rushed because they have certain households they need to reach. Like, for example, one person might need to read 1,000 households for right. the day. Wow. And they're mostly going by foot, mm-hmm. and so th- a lot of um, gender dynamics start coming into play yeah, definitely. Uh, with their role, and you see it play out in the in the interviews themselves as mm-hmm. well. And I think that was one thing that I also recommended is start tackling this this distrust or this animosity that's towards these workers, mm-hmm. because you're not going to find a force that's as well-equipped to be able to do the Mass Drug Administration yeah. as much as these workers. But hmm. the situation isn't too positive for them. Uh, I know President Modi promised uh, a wage raise last year, mm-hmm. and he didn't follow up on that promise. So a lot of the workers are also you know, filled with a lot of dissent because yeah. an extra thousand rupees can be life-changing for a lot of people. Right. Um, but, yeah, the community health workers are are the centerpiece to the entire movement within India, at least for Mm -hmm. sure. But I know that it's also the case within other countries as well.
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, And we're, I guess, kind of just to close it down. um, What was, I guess, your biggest takeaway, your biggest learning that you learned throughout your practicum experience?
2: That vertical programming really does need to be phased out. So vertical programming is top to bottom programming. And that's usually what we do in global health. But that should not be the case we really need to start finding ways to integrate what we're doing into the health system because we often leave communities reliant on external aid when right. we when we just come in and, and leave and that's usually
1: what mda is and i think that's one of my biggest takeaways okay great awesome if anyone wants to get in touch with you Javier, about your research or anything um could they have your yeah, email potentially yeah Okay. Um,
2: I'm hopefully my email information will be provided at the end of the at the end of the podcast in the footnotes, so you can get get in touch with me from there.
1: Awesome. Yes, it'll be in the episode description for us. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, thank you for your time here. Thanks for chatting with us. Anytime. Thanks. Hello again. Welcome back. This time I'm joined with Jess. Um, Hi, Jess. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Um, So this uh, interview will be a little bit different than the other three. Um, Jess and I were actually practicum partners over the summer. So we worked on our project together. So we'll be kind of having a conversation, um, I guess, a two-sided conversation about what we did um, this summer. So I guess, Jess, do you want to start it off kind of telling everybody what... um, what we I guess let's start with the there's an overarching um, research project that we are a part of Mm -hmm. so do you want to start with kind of the goals and the outcomes and what's the purpose of that project and then we'll go into what we did specifically yeah
3: good yeah so the first um This is a five-year research project, um, and we basically started day one, year one of this project. Mm -hmm. Um, It is called Educating for Equity, essentially building culturally safe care through indigenous narratives. Um, And the goal is to really focus in on services within the hospital, and here in London, Mm -hmm. and um, they are focusing on LHSC, which is London Health Sciences Center, and that consists of Victoria Hospital, the Children's Hospital,
1: and University Hospital.
3: Correct. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, <Jenna. laughs> No problem.
1: Um,
3: and so what they're essentially doing is they're looking at um, equitable services. So access to health care, access and, ba- and like really removing those barriers. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what has come up in this project is uh, racism and discrimination, stereotyping of indigenous folks when they do come in and access services through the hospital. Uh, so essentially what we're, they're trying to do is educate and um, educate the health uh, professionals mm-hmm. at um, LHSC who are working in these hospitals to really kind of focus on the history around indigenous folks and um, sort of why we why we experience these, um, you know, health disparities coming in and um, why do we have these beliefs and attitudes towards indigenous folks. So we're trying to really kind of pick apart and unpack that Mm -hmm. and that's I feel like this research project it really aims um, to do and they really want to build around uh, culturally safe training Mm -hmm. Um, and what that looks like is can be different and it can vary from person to person Um, and so that's uh, that's what I thought was really interesting about this um, project I Mm -hmm. don't know if you have anything else to that's kind of the first thing off the top of my head yeah do you have anything
1: that yeah you did a like a great summary of what we're working toward Mm -hmm. Um, i guess the thing that i would emphasize is that we're really um, and the project itself is really community driven and we're really like community centered so there's three um, first nations communities about like half an hour away from Mm -hmm. london Um, so we've been collaborating with um, one of them in particular right now but hopefully all three in the long run in the long term Um, and we've been so we've had one community meeting so far and we're really listening to the community's needs and what they want and what they think culturally safe care is and what it should be and what it should look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're taking that feedback and we're incorporating that into our project. So that's something that I really want to emphasize too. We, we are driven by the Indigenous patients who are accessing this care. Um,
3: yeah. That's perfect. And I think it's really true too because when you work with Indigenous folks, and this can go for anyone, when you're working with a, a community, maybe it be rural or urban Mm -hmm. populations of first nations people in inuit metis you really want to work towards that decolonized approach so Mm -hmm. what that means is instead of um having folks um coming into the community or interacting with first nations people and say this is what i think you need Mm -hmm. instead of saying that go in and listen to their stories listen to their narrative what do they need and then um, base your approach on that Mm -hmm. and then build around those um Uh, those different things that they need to help with, uh, removing those barriers. So that's the kind of approach that we took. And Mm -hmm. that's the approach that this project is taking is that decolonizing Mm -hmm. approach, because we really need to break down that barrier because essentially like this is, um, and me being as uh, an indigenous person, Mm -hmm. like this is my passion. This is, you know, helping my people is, is, um, where kind of my, uh, goals and aspirations lie so mm-hmm. i really hone in on that decolonized approach and, I, and it was really it was really fun to even um educate around first nations culture jenna for you and mm-hmm. then um to really expose you to a of these things so and, uh, and me that's my medicine yeah I, I i educate i help people i'm a helper and that's mm-hmm. kind of what i identify with so yeah. i feel like that that also drawn me to this project yeah. as well
1: yeah, for sure. And I'll just jump in with uh, an example of this decolonized approach that we've been taking. So, um, at our community meeting, they we had the EMS and some healthcare workers and some community members present, um, as well as our research team. And um, one of the things that they mentioned was that they really the patients wanted to know their rights and responsibilities. So we um, took that and we created like a patient guidebook. Um, Right now, is a template. So we t- created a template for Indigenous folks who have cancer, um, and they're accessing it um, services through the Canadian Cancer, or sorry, through Cancer Care Ontario. Um, and in the front of that book, we have their patient rights and responsibilities right there for that um, those individuals. And that template can then be adapted to other. Um, departments or as needed um, as seen by the community so that's just an example of how we are being um, adaptive to the needs of the community yeah Um, so what are I guess let's shift more to what we did Mm -hmm. specifically for this project so we we did a little a lot of mini projects so do you want to Maybe talk about that. So
3: um, one of the first ones that we kind of really focused on was a community research agreement. So this project is that we forgot to mention is essentially out of Western University. Um, And it is going into one of the communities here in London. Um, So there really needs to be an agreement or document of some sort as to how communication, how the process, how relationships are going to work, the reporting structures. So all of that needs to be encompassed within one document. Mm -hmm. And so what I did is that I created a community research agreement template Mm -hmm. um, and it is based on the OCAP principles which are um, ownership, control, access, and possession of uh, data and government. So what this means is that essentially the community will own, they will control, they will have access to the information and they'll actually possess this data. So how, uh, how we approach this, how we collect data mm-hmm. is really based on how the community wants it to be collect- collected, where it's going to be stored and how they're going to have access to it. So they have a lot of ownership mm-hmm. over that data and information, which is really good. And mm-hmm. that, again, is an example of a decolonized yeah. approach. Um, so that's essentially what I did. And now it was a foundation because it does take time because we are built on relationships and, um, we really, there's a lot of process that we need to go through even with, um, you know, chief and council mm-hmm. and other forms of government that need approval. So this was a foundation foundational template that we devised. Um, and then, so that was one of
1: them. Mm-hmm the other was the knowledge translation jenna yeah so there was a baseline study um that kind of helped to inform this grant that was um i guess then received um and accepted for this five-year project that we're now working on so i created a, a couple knowledge translation posters um from this baseline study that was created so that i just kind of um I created a couple different versions, so some for academic folks, some for Indigenous community members. Um, just outlining the findings, and a lot of those findings were that. Ca- um, so, so the findings came from interviews of um, healthcare professionals, and we found that, um, you know, they they do realize that there is racism, there is discrimination. They are seeing these things, and they want to move forward. So, a lot of um, the findings that we found were positive, like you know they're seeing this negative thing but what can we do to fix that so um, putting that into a piece um, that can be understood by the community is really important um, and then another thing that I kind of took the lead on was a service mapping mm-hmm. so this was a one of the bigger projects that we took on um, and everything we did in collaboration and we yeah, um, for sure.
3: We definitely supported each other through yeah. all of these projects.
1: <laughs> definitely. So the service mapping, um, we used a software called Tableau. So um, I kind of like learned that from scratch. That was interesting Good process. For you. <laughs> yes. Kudos. And um, so that uh, we realized that we were doing some searching um, f- because we out of this baseline study, we also found that Um, care providers didn't know where to refer their indigenous clients to if they wanted other supports or services so we did some searching and we didn't find any any resources that did this so we um said like let's create our own let's create a map of Mm -hmm. these services that are available to these patients so um we we created that um for both um, Indigenous specific and non-Indigenous specific services Um, and that is still in the works but hopefully um, you know moving on and next steps we have created some next steps for that mapping process so hopefully that'll be you know that'll take off and be helpful for healthcare professionals eventually yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Um, and then we also worked on uh, I touched on the guidebook a bit if you want to go into that a little bit more. Uh, so essentially the guidebook
3: is for it's it's OK. So London Health Sciences Center, LHSC, what I was talking about, all those um, hospitals, they have a patient guidebook just for anyone who's accessing the hospital. Mm-hmm. And it has all this information, where to park, who to access, who to get and connect, connect, connected to. <laughs> Um, and so what we did is we developed one for indigenous folks. Um, um, so we did it specific for Cancer Care Ontario. Yeah. Um, and what we did is we highlighted the patient rights and responsibilities, how, the how-to process on how to file a complaint, how to follow up with that, and then who they should connect to. I know there's Aboriginal patient navigators in this area, so they should connect to SOHAC, which is South Ontario Aboriginal Health As- Access Center here in London. Um, So all this information is all jammed into one book for um, indigenous patients as well. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we devised. Um, Mm -hmm. And then the last thing that we did was the best practices for culturally safe care. And so what we did is we just kind of um, scanned the literature of what's out there. um, What are they saying are best practices or tried and true uh, practices for indigenous specific folks for culturally safe care? So we devised a little kind of foundation for the heart team which is the health equity action research team um and that was kind of our summer and what we Mm -hmm. we did we did all these little projects and they were well received and excited yeah we got
1: to develop these skills yeah yeah so i guess going back to like the culturally safe care um, best practices we we found that it really depends on the community that you're working with and Mm -hmm. i guess the professional that you're working with and their department and specialty so That was hard to kind of like get concrete findings from, Mm -hmm. but, um, There was a few models that we came across that we kind of dissected, kind of put into an annotated bibliography form um, for future reference. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, hopefully these, um, yeah, the best practices and community voices, community narratives. We're hoping to tie that all together to ultimately come up with a way to eliminate discrimination and and racism towards indigenous patients within the hospital system. So that is a huge goal, um, very lofty. Huge. So I wouldn't even say
3: eliminate. I would say reduce, <laughs> yeah. because it's very Honestly. embedded. It's such a, a a distal social determinant of health. That's totally. where it's embedded and foundational. Yeah. Um. Within. So yeah. It's but but that's the goal that yes. we're aiming to.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a huge it's a huge lofty goal, but a very important one, and yep. uh, we're excited to see where research goes and um, you know if, how, if we can support that in the future. Mm-hmm. So just to wind down the interview yep. um, I guess we'll start with Jess. What was your biggest takeaway, your biggest learning from this practicum experience? So my biggest takeaway is even though I'm
3: Indigenous, I'm First Nation, I, I am from Six Nations of the Grand River. Um, I am a, from a very big reserve mm-hmm. um, and uh, what I've learned is that before this I've never really visited a lot of other communities and um i was so entrenched in in what works for my community where i go out and the main learning is when we when we went to thunder bay there were so many first nations up there there's 69 mm-hmm. first nation northern communities just within their lind just within the lind um, that you can't always paint the same picture for first nations because they're so dynamic and they're so unique even th- that takeaway and that's something that i'll advocate uh, until the end of time is that when you're working with indigenous folks you have to go and be out there in the field and ask them questions and so that is um something that the takeaway that i would do is that um really really submerge yourself into the community ask these questions and um that was a big learning for me Mm -hmm. it was uh, it was eye-opening because i've never had that experience before but
1: yeah definitely something to take away. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess for me, um, the biggest learning for me would be just how to engage community members. I've never really worked that closely with a community organization or Mm. or community. Um, And we worked with a lot of stakeholders. So kind of like trying to keep everything straight and um, collaboration, bringing everyone together, that Mm -hmm. was a challenge. So just really opened my eyes to how real world Um, qualitative research how difficult that can actually be when you when you're doing it right Mm -hmm. Um, when you're collaborating and incorporating all the stakeholders you should for sure Um, so yeah that was just really a really cool um, experience for me so if um, any of our listeners want to get in touch you can email jess and i Um, my email is j s c h l o r f at uwo.ca and jess's and mine is j hill 83 at uw.ca awesome okay thanks for listening thanks for being with us Jess. Thank yeah take care thanks hello and we're back again this time with rochelle how are you doing today i'm good how are you good um so if you could just give us a little bit of a rundown of what you did while you were on practicum this summer that would be great
4: uh sure so over the last few months i've been working with the canadian red cross um, to conduct some research regarding international humanitarian aid deployments, specifically in relation to Cyclone Adai in Mozambique. Recently, Cyclone Adai has caused some pretty significant destruction, and we were hoping to find a way to make our humanitarian aid deployments more collaborative. Awesome.
1: Okay, could you tell me a bit more about like the Canadian Red Cross and what they do, their role and, in disaster relief?
4: Sure, yeah, so when a country is stricken with an emergency, um, They will complete something called a draft, so a disaster relief emergency fund. And that will be sent to the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, so the IFRC. Mm -hmm. And once the IFRC approves of this, then we'll send out um, support requests to all Red Crescent Societies, um, and whoever is able to respond to the disaster will hopefully provide some emergency relief from there.
1: Okay. And these Red Crescent societies, are they like the Red Cross?
4: Yeah. So the Red Cross Cross and the Red Crescent are both the same organization, but in some countries, the cross is symbolized as a religious symbol. So then they changed that to Red Crescent.
1: Okay. That makes sense. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. Um, So going back to your research, could you tell me a bit more about um, what you did and I guess your process um, when you, like this is a huge issue, right? A big problem, big public health problem. Um, So can you tell me kind of how you went about trying to solve that issue?
4: Sure. So I was working with the Global Health Unit at the Red Cross National Office in Ottawa, and I conducted a scoping review um, looking through relevant databases, trying to find any best practices or research available to understand how different humanitarian aid organizations go into a country and provide care at a collaborative level. Most of the time we're seeing westernized countries going into different countries and providing culturally inappropriate care or um, what we would like to call siloed care. So they act as if they're their own facility and deliver care based off of the policies and procedures they have. Mm -hmm. But what we tried to do with Cyclone Adai in Mozambique and the Red Cross specifically, we worked in Namatanda, which is um, about 150 kilometers north of the capital city. Um, And we worked within a pre-existing health facility and tried to embed ourselves with their healthcare providers. But then you come across difficulties with medical practice and scopes and who makes final decisions.
1: Right, right. Yeah, Yeah. lots to consider, for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, Um, when you say, I guess you mentioned a couple words, culturally inappropriate and siloed care, do you mind like kind of going into what those terms mean a bit?
4: Sure. So a lot of times with culturally inappropriate care, uh, we saw this a lot with Haiti, with the earthquake in Haiti, um, where westernized doctors will come Mm -hmm. to Haiti and provide care to patients um, to what they believe is the best practice to be doing. So for instance, in Haiti, we saw a lot of amputations, but... It was culturally inappropriate because there wasn't enough resources to support these people with these amputations right. following the absence of the humanitarian aid sector um, and then these people uh, eventually died a mm-hmm. pretty a pretty painful death um, so when we are providing culturally inappropriate care you risk that in in several different methods mm-hmm. and then with siloed care um, we, we usually see humanitarian aid um, organizations like the Red Cross even or World Vision, different, different organizations come in and set up their own field hospital, right. admit patients and then discharge them. But then they leave and then mm-hmm. the country is left in deficit. So instead of a siloed approach, that was the point of my research was to engage in more collaboration.
1: Right. Yeah. And then did you find any models or countries um, that kind of ha- take this approach at all?
4: There is very little research. It's a, it's a very under-researched area right, right. now. It's, it's pretty newly developing.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, there was a little bit of evidence from Israel with their medical defense team um, embedding themselves in, in a pre-existing hospital. And the most findings I could find from that was that eventually you do receive better care. Mm-hmm. But there is a lack of discussion on the nuances on how to provide that care hmm. and that's where we were finding issues we, we understand that we will deliver better care collaboration right. almost always enhances patient outcomes mm-hmm. but how do you go about that when there's disagreements and mm-hmm. there's uncertainties on policies and then when my medical scope as a Canadian RN is a lot different than a the medical scope of a Mozambican
1: yeah RN. definitely yeah yeah. So did your did your role as um, a nurse, because I know you you're like Rochelle is a registered nurse. So did that kind of
4: play into this project at all? It definitely did. I had to assess my own biases. Um, if I were in Mozambique, there's certain ways that I think I would have wanted to conduct my practice right. as an RN here in Canada. Yeah. Um, but I also have to recognize that there is a bit of like disagreement on what I'm allowed to do here versus what I would be allowed to do in in a southern mm-hmm. a South African country. Yeah. So, you you have to understand the context. Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. It's all about the context. It is. Yes.
1: <laughs> yes. For sure. Um, and I guess did you did you find any? sort of like a definition for like what collaboration of care means like what does culturally safe care look like at all is there any research about that Um,
4: there's plenty of research on what is collaboration Um, most of it again is pretty westernized so we're seeing different scopes um, or disciplines so like physicians midwives nurses Mm -hmm. um, entering one field and and delivering care to one patient in the most collaborative or unified way possible Mm -hmm. Um, but then when you get into what that means on an international level you're working with RNs and RNs or doctors and doctors right. surgeons and surgeons mm-hmm. so that collaboration gets blurry and there's a lot of gray area on mm-hmm. like who has final decision making mm-hmm. and who deserves that when we're working in a namatanda hospital but we're still under the red cross name right so
1: yeah that gets tricky the mm-hmm. line of authority right exactly yeah definitely so did you come up with any recommendations or next steps for the Red Cross? Um, or n- were you not able to get that far?
4: <laughs> um, it, it, it's a little difficult okay. because there's not a lot of research. So my recommendations come primarily from my own observations and, and observations that I've made from previous deployments that the Red Cross has done in an effort to become more collaborative. Right. Um, so my main, my main recommendations were to recognize that this is a newly developing field first and then go into a deployment with the mindset that we will be collaborating. I believe most humanitarian aid sectors don't always walk into a situation believing that this will be happening. Mm -hmm. Truthfully, with Mozambique, um, the Red Cross was supposed to deploy to Beira. um, And then within a few hours of being in Beira, they were told to move to Namatanda. And Mm -hmm. their plan got completely shifted. So they went from the siloed to more of a collaborative model, not at their own accord. Okay. So as long as we can... Work with our humanitarian aid sectors to mm-hmm. understand that collaboration might be an option. Um, that that's like one of the first steps, right? And, and then once tough. we get there, how can we keep that collaboration going, and how can we build that trust and those relationships?
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's very tough, very tough to do, right? It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Could you tell me more about the situation in Mozambique, and I guess maybe um, the Red Cross's role in that too?
4: Sure. So when the Red Cross arrived to Nematanda They were then embedded within the Namatana General Hospital. Here, they ran into a plethora of disagreements with their counterparts. Um, And whether or not these were professional or personal disagreements, it doesn't matter. There was just really an issue with the collaboration aspect in general. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you're seeing that result on the patient outcomes. So how many patients are surviving our care? Mm and ultimately that's what matters the most yeah definitely the patient's outcomes right Mm -hmm. their quality of life and everything
1: um so as we kind of wind down this interview what was your biggest takeaway or biggest learning from this practicum experience
4: yeah so i think my biggest learning falls pretty directly on the role of westernized medicine in an international sphere Um, this practicum fell on me somewhat by accident so I ended up being in a, in a position where I didn't know much about the situation and I didn't have much background knowledge. And, and truly, I did have biases towards international humanitarian aid sectors. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always been that controversy that tends to pop up. I know The Lancet has made a few different publications on controversies surrounding international humanitarian aid and, mm-hmm. and the privilege associated with Canadian and westernized medicine. Yeah. Um, and I think what I can take away from this is understanding ways that we can combat this and not allow ourselves as very privileged Canadian mm-hmm. healthcare practitioners to enter a country and, and act as if we are the, the expert mm-hmm. on, on a situation that we might not truly understand. And I really respect the Red Cross for having that humble approach to their work Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's kind of rare to find in the international sector
1: Yeah, that's great. And it's great that the Red Cross is um, working toward that collaboration lens, right? Like working towards Mm -hmm. humanitarian aid in collaboration with those countries that they service. So that's great. That's a good step in the right direction for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, well, thank you for being with us, Rochelle. Um, If our listeners want to get in touch with you, um, would the best way be by email? Yeah, by email. Okay. Do you mind um, sharing your email
4: with us? Sure. It's R-R-O-U-S-S-E-3 at U-W-O dot C-A. Okay,
1: awesome. Thank you so much again for being with us and take care. Thank you. Hello, and we're back again, this time with Noor. Hi, Noor, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jenna. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Um, So could you just give us a little bit of background and just tell us what you were doing while you were on your practicum?
5: Yeah, totally. So I was at the Public Health Agency of Canada, and I was working in the health equity integration team. So the health equity integration team is the focal point of contact for anything that has to do with sex and gender based analysis plus or GBA plus or SGBA plus. It's kind of known in different ways. Um, And what we do is really try to advance the agency's understanding of and use of the tool. So SGBA plus is a tool to achieving health equity. So um, what the tool does is really taking into consideration intersectional factors that might impact different populations and then using that tool to then address how
1: interventions
5: should be targeted towards those Diverse populations. Wow.
1: Okay. Very interesting. Um, could you just give us a little bit of background about what the Public Health Agency of Canada is as a being, um, what they do. Maybe like maybe not the whole organization, but uh, specifically what your role was within mm-hmm.
5: PHAC. So um, from my knowledge, the Public Health Agency was established after the SARS epidemic that took place, and so there really was this like big response of we need to know. Um, what we should be doing when big public health concerns arise and we need to have um, a system in place to address those and since then it's sort of grown depending on the government that is in power Mm. depending on what priorities are what they're um, hoping to address in terms of public health Mm -hmm. Um, and so now it's really about um, specifically where I work and at at the Social Determinants of Health Division Um, so I I work mostly with folks who are working on those sort of intersectional factors um, that impact different populations. Um, So there's different teams that do diverse things mm-hmm. with that. Um, so that could be from partnering with community members and community stakeholders to provide funding for programs and interventions. Um, it could be building capacity internally like our team does um, with using SGB plus because we recognize that that's an important lens to take mm-hmm. when um, trying to address public health concerns, especially for marginalized communities who may not have had that right. um, in their Historically speaking, right? right. And systemically speaking, right? Um, so all of these different things and all of these different factors sort of play into how the agency now also targets different um, and diverse public health interventions right. and programming.
1: Great. Thanks. Mm-hmm. And you said you're with the social determinants of health kind of department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, could you just for our listeners maybe who don't know what is the social determinant of health? What does mm-hmm. that mean? So, um, In terms of the public health
5: agency's view of social determinants of health, there are 12, I think, off the top of my head, if I remember them correctly. And those are different factors that might influence how um, you may have different barriers to accessing health care or different barriers to achieving your full potential to health. And so those are things like race, um, income, culture, education, Mm -hmm. um, all of those different factors that might then influence how your health benefits or um, is negatively impacted. Mm -hmm. Um, So those are social determinants of health. So really in the division, uh, the social determinants of health division, that's kind of our core principle is recognizing that those intersecting factors exist. And then how do we take those and address different populations needs based on that uh, based on their diversity and based Mm -hmm. on those factors
1: yeah and that gets Mm -hmm. really complex it does yes so many factors play into everything exactly exactly wow that's great work Mm -hmm. um and you mentioned about this sgb a plus. plus, yes. Is that the, that's the name of the tool? Yes, that's the name so of the tool. So, could you unpack that a little bit for yes, me? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I can
5: unpack that. Thanks. So, SGBA plus or sex and gender based analysis plus. Okay. Um, so, that's the name for it in the health portfolio. Um, in the health portfolio, both sex and gender are seen as important factors that impact health. And then the plus sort of holds a lot of the rest of the weight of what intersectionality is. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about geography, we're talking about income, we're talking about education, we're talking about um, ability, culture, race, Mm -hmm. uh, all of those different factors that sort of play into how different populations are impacted by um, systems around us and by how they might be impacted in accessing health care or public health uh interventions so for example we can look at like so for my literature review kind of mm-hmm. going into a little bit of what i did with my work but yeah. so for my lit review what i did was i took a look at public health interventions and physical activity that take into account an sgba plus lens so looking at different population groups that need physical activity interventions um, and how we can design programs that take those different factors into account and take those populations diversity into account Mm. when creating these programs to ensure their sustainability and success
1: right Right, so this tool um, is kind of used to evaluate different programs that are potentially already in place, is that correct?
5: Yeah, so it could. it's kind of used um, in, in the planning, implementation, okay. and evaluation process, but it is an evaluative tool okay. to see how those different phases of programming can be impacted by mm-hmm. intersectional lens and
1: intersectionality. Right, yeah. so just to help me kind of conceptualize this mm-hmm. tool, is it kind of like does it have various like categories or questions yeah. or how does it
5: work? Yeah, totally. Great question. Um, so one of the first things that it really asks you to do is check your biases. Mm. Um, so really check in about like what biases you bring to the table, what you might be bringing in that might impact your worldview on like the different program that might be planned, implemented or evaluated. Right. Um, and then it kind of goes through these different steps of like, how can we um, assess population's needs and, um, and again, the sex and gender um, name sort of, I think, skews that a little bit, right? Like I think we think of just sex and gender rather right. than really taking that intersectional plus lens approach. So
1: the tool just kind of helps um, Is it would it be like individuals or organizations planning these or evaluating their programming just to make sure that it's, um, meeting the needs of the various diverse populations, correct? Yes, exactly. Awesome. Great. Mm, did it much better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> just a quick summary. No, it's all good. <laughs> awesome. Okay. So you said you mentioned you did kind of a lit review. Yes. Could you go into more of that and wh- what that process was like and your findings?
5: Yeah, sure. So I worked um, with my manager to determine what direction we needed to take the literature review too because uh, the hope was to use the results that came out of the literature review to then develop a video that would go out to the general public okay. um, on the findings that we have like that came out of the literature review mm. and so we partnered with the multi-sectoral partnerships division okay. um, and we decided on focusing on physical activity and seeing looking at two different population groups and how physical activity interventions can be targeted towards them. So we took a look at, and this is a very strange dichotomy. I will preface that. We looked at adolescent girls and middle-aged men. Okay. So (laughs) yes, very interesting dichotomy. Um, The reason we took a look at those two different groups is because when we look at the literature, they are the ones that either for adolescent girls have the lowest rates of physical activity, For men, they have the higher rates of obesity compared to women. Hmm. So that was kind of our thinking in terms of physical activity. Those are the two population groups. So looking into the literature, we made sure we wanted to collaborate with a couple of community members, Mm -hmm. community stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And so that's why we collaborated with the Multisectorial Partnerships Division, because they provide grants and contributions to um, different community members who do interventions, public health interventions. Cool. Um, so one of the organizations fit spirit slash phil um, based mostly out of Quebec does, um, exercise with adolescent girls, exercise interventions with adolescent girls. And then they do a run at the end of like the, their program. And
0: mm-hmm. then the
5: other one that we were hoping to partner with was actually a Western community partner. Okay. Unfortunately that fell through, but, um, It was intervention targeted specifically towards middle-aged men. Um, So when we took a look at, you know, what does the literature say in terms of physical activity interventions and public health, Mm -hmm. um, we found that gender roles played a huge part in whether or not people uptook physical activity. Um, So for adolescent girls, there was a lot of um, focus on on sports and, and sports being a boy's thing Mm -hmm. and that they shouldn't be involved in sports because that's for boys to do Um, and there was a lot of um, from what I remember um, body image stuff that also came up for um, adolescent girls what we found was that girls who are more obese tend to have more body shame um, and therefore don't partake in physical activity as much Mm -hmm. Um, For adolescent men, those gender roles kind of looked a little bit different wherein there's this idea of masculinity and upholding like Mm. a masculine ideal. Um, And so because middle-aged men feel that pressure of um, upholding that masculine ideal, um, there was sort of this difficulty in partaking in physical activity because physical activity is always seen in society as losing weight. And so that loss of weight tied into men not wanting to be losing weight like right. that's not their reasoning for wanting mm-hmm. to be involved in physical activity right. Right. so yes. it's a little bit complicated and it's nuanced and it's yeah. difficult to unpack because yeah. it's historically not things that we've been thinking about right Right. like Mm -hmm. um and so now that it's sort of more at the forefront sex and gender based analysis plus or sgba plus that can help us see how can we then target maybe middle-aged men who are rural or who are low income or who are a different race Mm -hmm. or um adolescent girls who are new immigrants Mm -hmm. right and so how do we make sure that those interventions are successful and are also reaching that
1: community that you want them to reach yeah definitely really interesting Mm. so based on these um findings of your literature review and would you bring in the tool then to kind of assess that like does that come together at all
5: um so in this case it the way that it came together was when i was reading the literature and assessing for example what populations of interest did they use so was it middle-aged men who are predominantly white was it middle-aged men who are predominantly of a different culture lower socioeconomic status so it was really about seeing whether or not the literature had those intersections um in in programming it looks a little bit different because for example with the multi-sectoral partnerships division who are the ones that um, provide the grants and contributions to the different community partners. Mm -hmm. For them, it's really about assessing for each community partner that applies for a grant or contribution, what population of interest are they trying to target? And so really trying to do that sort of analytical um, lens of who are you targeting and how are you going to be reaching them Mm. given all of these different identity factors. Right, right. Yeah,
1: really interesting. Does that
5: answer the question? Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: it yeah. does, definitely. Hmm. Yeah, cool. That's really yeah. cool. <laughs> okay, so I guess um, I'm looking for, like, what is the the so what of this tool and this literature review that you worked on, your project, I guess.
5: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah, if you can go into that a little bit.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that there's something to be said about different diverse populations experiencing more barriers and higher barriers to accessing healthcare, to accessing supports, to accessing the services that they might need. And all of these different barriers can really have a negative impact on diverse populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and these negative health outcomes, like we see those in literature, right? So with adolescent girls, like I mentioned earlier, they have a lower rate of physical activity uptake and that can lead to Um, chronic diseases and chronic illnesses down the line right so Mm -hmm. the the goal really of sgba plus and intersectionality is to put in place preventative care for diverse populations for marginalized populations who may have systemically and historically been and continue to be impacted by these different factors leading to negative health outcomes Mm -hmm. and so the goal is to really the goal of health equity and the goal of sgba as a SGBA Plus as a tool to achieving health equity is to reach true equality and have those barriers removed. How can we make sure that those barriers no longer exist? Mm -hmm. And so that's really the goal of health equity, right? Is to recognize that different populations and marginalized populations experience negative health outcomes and we want to do better. And how can we do better? Mm -hmm. It's by using SGBA Plus to achieve health equity.
1: Yeah. Wow. Great. That's really, really interesting, really good work. And, and you mentioned like the preventative side of things. Like That's a really good mm-hmm. public health lens to look at, right? Preventing mm-hmm. before we need to be reactive and exactly. treat what we could have prevented, right? Exactly.
5: That's great. Wow. And reaction is great and everything, but then how can we look upstream? How can we address things yeah. from a more systemic way, yeah. from a more population-based way, mm-hmm. and upstream before these chronic illnesses or
1: chronic diseases even happen in the exactly. beginning? Yeah. Exactly, yeah great that's really interesting work um so could you tell me I guess your big takeaway what was your biggest learning from this experience
5: um biggest learning from this experience has been I think for the most part learning how to collaborate with different stakeholders that I haven't in the past Mm. Um, so partnering with different divisions internally at the public health agency and then also with community members and community organizations Mm -hmm. Um, that's been a a big learning curve I think that that's really important for us to keep our stakeholders at the center of the work that we do Mm -hmm. and so that was um, exciting to see that it's happening yeah Um, my other takeaway from it was um, really learning about SGBA plus when it comes to policy and policy work and really seeing it embedded in the policy work and policy analysis work that's being done at the federal level. Mm-hmm. So that's very exciting to see. It's very exciting to see that there is a recognition yeah. or that, that intersectionality is needed, that S G B plus is needed to achieve health equity mm-hmm. um, and, and embedding that into the work that not just the agency is doing, but th- that the federal government is doing. Um, I was I was I will say like I personally I was skeptical going into the federal government in terms of like their knowledge mm-hmm. and, and and experiences with mm-hmm. SGBA plus yeah. but I was pleasantly surprised and Good. I was and I'm excited to continue to see where that yeah. work is going to continue to grow. Yeah. yeah,
1: you're continuing on with this project. I
5: correct? will be. So I will be staying on with the health equity integration awesome. team um, at the public health agency. And I will be working out of the Vancouver regional office Okay. Um, as that's home base for me. Yeah. And then, yeah, I'll continue to work on. So now we're developing a video out of that literature review. Right, right. So I'll continue to work on that and cool. continue to collaborate with our different stakeholders. And then I will be hopefully working with one of my colleagues to develop some internal capacity building training around sgba plus okay. cool. so we're gonna hopefully have more nuanced discussions have more in-depth discussions about what is sgba plus and how yeah. do we see it play out at the agency huh. with different teams so wow yeah that's, that's very exciting awesome.
1: yeah <laughs> wow congrats thank you that's very exciting work yeah, very exciting awesome well thanks again Noor for being here um, if our listeners want to get in touch with you could they email you potentially
5: yes absolutely you are more than welcome to email me so my email is cashew, so that's n-k-a-c-h-o-u-h at uwo.ca
1: Okay, great. Thanks again for being with us, Noor.
5: Thank you so much, Jenna. I really appreciate it. Have a good one.
0: And that's it for this episode of GradCast. We are a production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University, and we air on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. You can follow us on social media through Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. That's at GradCast Radio. If you want to get in touch with us or come on the show, send us an email at Gradcastradio at gmail.com. Finally, uploaded and archived episodes of the show can be downloaded through Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to the Master of Public Health Poster Day here at Western University with interviews hosted by Jenna and Connor Thanks for listening.